and welcome to today's episode of Cargo of Bricks, part of the Reset Project brought to you by Slugger O'Toole and kindly sponsored by Ulster Bank. Now, today's guest is Dan O'Brien, who is Chief Economist at the Institute of International and European Affairs in Dublin. So I began by asking Dan, what exactly is the Irish government doing to tackle the enormous economic crisis brought on by COVID-19? Yeah, hi, Mick, and thanks for having me on. Um, look, governments, certainly governments that have, have, have the wherewithal to, to intervene and spend large amounts of money um, across the world have done so in a, in a really unprecedented way. This has been a massive, this has been sort of the biggest state intervention since the Second World War uh, in, in, you know, democratic market, free market economies. Um, and Ireland has been, you know, broadly in line with that. Um, huge interventions in the labour market to support people who've lost work, a huge wage subsidisation programme to keep keep people in work and companies that can't afford to pay them, uh, and then big health interventions as well. So one of the things I keep saying on this whole thing is it's just too early to say who's got it right, uh, how different things are. Things have changed so much in the last six months. Like, you know, I thought the, the great financial crisis, the great recession of 08 and the euro crisis, that period would be the most sort of biggest period of, of upheaval I would ever see in my lifetime for, for, for this part of the world. But this is puts it in the halfpenny place. And this is it's pretty frightening. One of the reasons why it's difficult to uh, prognosticate on it uh, in terms of what's coming in the future is just the sheer scale of the change. What do you think this means for governments or even the re- regional administrations like the Northern Ireland administration um, what does it mean for them going forward? Does it mean they could be more adventurous in terms of um, what they might contemplate doing um, or or not? Well, I'd be very wary of governments anywhere looking at this as an opportunity. You know, it really is a disaster. Um, and it's going to lead to leave a massive bill um, because of what's happened. You know, a huge amount of wealth has not been generated because of COVID. And that's, you know, the reason we live the lives we lead now is because economies are able to constantly generate this huge this huge amount of wealth, which we consume and enjoy and, and have prosperity. COVID has put a, a halt to a huge chunk of that. And that's thrown us into the deepest recession, you know, we, we, that, that, that we've ever experienced. You know, the contraction in the first half of the year was like nothing on record. The whole global economy went into a contraction. We haven't seen that since, since in decades, since figures started start or, or, or first compiled. So I think, you know, it, governments should look at this. You know, I think governments will be wary about looking at this as sort of uh, an opportunity, particularly if it involves additional uh, spending, because, you know, the bill comes due on this. Um, it's going to be difficult to get to get public finances back in order, and you know that issue has not gone away because this recession was caused by caused by a virus rather than something else. Uh, you know, public resources are are, are finite, and uh, there are going to be tough times ahead once we get over the health part of this 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 catastrophe. And yet, business has to go on. I mean, business has gone on in Brazil. It's gone on in the US. Um, and yet, if you look at the comparisons with those countries that have not done some kind of structured social intervention on, as you point out, the, the labor markets, the, the losses in those places seem to be much higher than they are in, in where there's been at least moderate intervention. 
Yeah, again, I think it's very difficult to say, uh, it's too early to say, uh, Mick, on those things. You know, this is going to, this is the biggest social policy, political experiment that we have ever seen. And, you know, we're, we're going to be academics and people in policy circles are going to be studying the different things that were done for decades to come in terms of, you know, what worked, what didn't work. So, um, you know, I, I personally think that it was absolutely essential that governments that had the wherewithal to, to step in and, and cushion the blow from mass unemployment were absolutely right to do that. Um, and uh, but, you know, how long that can be maintained uh, if this if the, if the pandemic continues uh, for you know another six months at nine months, 12 months, you know, governments are going to start running out of money. And that's when things will really get airy. So in terms of where you, you sit with the IAEA in Dublin, clearly you've got a kind of a view on what countries beyond um, the shores of Ireland are, are, are doing. Are, are there any kind of diverse forms of approach that you've seen that perhaps are worth, worth sharing with the listeners? Well, you know, clearly most people would be aware of the Swedish case, and I'm not a health expert, so I wouldn't, you know, don't want to really talk too much about it. But clearly, the, the Swedish case uh, and the Brazilian case, I happen to have personal family connections with Brazil, um, that neither of those countries had lockdowns. But is there a strong correlation between countries that didn't lock down and better economic performance? It's, again, too early to say. I'm not seeing it. You know, a lot of people, for example, in Ireland who want a zero COVID island policy. You know, are, are saying that there's, it's absolutely the case that the the evidence shows that if you kill the virus, you know, um, then your your economy will recover. Well, you know, I'm sorry, that is just not proved by any way close to being proven at this point. You know, we saw in New Zealand had this massive contraction in its economy in the second quarter of the year, which was the same as Belgium's and Italy. And, you know, they, they're the two countries that were, in terms of deaths, were two of the worst affected countries in the world from COVID at that time. So, you know, it's, it is very early to say. Uh, may, my hunch is that my hunch is that, the, 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 you know, most countries have overreacted to this um, um, but that may be proved wrong. And, you know, ultimately, my hunch is the Swedes, Swedish approach will, will come to be adopted by more countries. The living with COVID um, and moving away from lockdown approaches is, is, is ultimately going to be how countries move to. That, that's my hunch. So uh, interesting, you said uh, at the beginning that we thought back in 2008 to 10 that that was pretty much not going to be re- uh, repeatable. But of course, this has snuck up within 12 years and done something to us that we didn't expect. We've never had to deal with a novel virus like this. And I think it's the, to some extent, um, it's the not knowing, the, the sheer novelty of the threat that has just thrown us into this hugger-mugger uh, uh, and kind of improvising responses, really in terms of what our civilian populations will tolerate um um and it has been said that sweden in a way is a good example sweden and denmark if you like those are two neighbors who've taken radically different points of view but actually both countries have very high levels of communal trust within government and people have kind of gone along with all of that Yep, and you, you could throw in Finland and Norway there as well in, in terms of that sort of consensual political culture, uh, high trust levels, and in, in all the Nordics, that similar sort of culture there. So what can we learn in terms of where are deficits in terms of our, our resilience facing this kind of novel threat? Because actually, 
whatever the health debate, and I, I appreciate we're not, and neither of us are health experts, and this isn't really the subject of this episode, but um, it does seem to me that the fatality levels are not as high as they might be with, with something as transmittable as this. You know, if you compare to the Spanish flu of 1918, the, the mortality rates don't be, seem to be affecting the working population as much. Um, but there is a question here about our ability to deal with unforeseen circumstances in a just-in-time uh, a, a global economy. Well, one of the good news stories out of this is that there was a, a fear that the virus and the pandemic would actually cause you know, food shortages and break down the global supply chains. The international trade fell by much less than a lot of people feared, including organizations of the World Trade Organization, who knows a good bit about these things. Um, so global supply chains have actually proved much more resilient than, than you know, was feared initially. So that's maybe one of, one of the more positive things to come out of it. And certainly the, the Republic's economy, um, it's a highly globalized economy, one of the most globalized in the world. And we, we export massive amounts of goods and services relative to the size of the economy. And, you know, a lot of that is in the pharmaceutical sector. And Ireland was the only country in Europe to see actual increase in its exports in the first half of of uh, 2020, mainly uh, because of those pharmaceutical exports, because there's big extra demand for them. So I think, you know, again, standing back at this point, uh, resilience of supply chains uh, has, has actually been a, a, a kind of a positive uh, to come out of this. So there is some resilience there. What, what about planning? I mean, uh, what about planning for the medium to kind of long term? Are there any things that we ought to be kind of thinking about in terms of improving i mean talking to tony gallagher from queen's university he talked about some of the innovations that are coming through in education because of the pressure that schools are under um he he mentioned the possibility that actually um remote learning may be uh, something that just can be rolled out as part of the governance the general governance system and it does seem to me that even in in terms of building, say, an all-island economy, that perhaps there are things there that we could be at least thinking about in the near abstract um, about how we how we build some more uh, resilience into our internal systems. Okay, a good few things there. Like, look, I think there there clearly are opportunities um, in, in the medium term to change things for the better. You know, my, I'm an international. I work for an international affairs think tank. So, you know, we we one of the big things we do is is host foreign guest speakers to talk about global, international, European issues. And in many ways, the the it has the, the pandemic has been a boon for us in the sense that it's much much easier to get somebody to 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 speak to us. Uh, if they just have to log on uh, to, a, to, to a Zoom meeting, then have to fly over the night before, be put up in a hotel, you know, take at least 24 hours out of their schedule. So, you know, we've had um, a lot more people. It's easier to get guest speakers from particularly further afield. And we're getting, you know, multiples of the numbers of people attending and listening to our events online than we were in, 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 in person. So, you know, there are trends that are that have been accelerated by this and they can be positive in some way. Um, on the issue of the all-island economy, 
Um, you know, I think we are facing changes there. Back to the the, the Brexit uh, issue, there is now you know it's almost certain that there are going to be barriers to trade in the in the Irish Sea come uh, the first of January, and that's going to have implications. I think one of the implications is that um, the Northern Irish economy will um, pivot to some extent, divert. Uh, its trade away from GB towards Ireland because there'll be no barriers to trade um, with the Republic. Um, and just to throw out a figure there, you know, there there really hasn't been much of a development of an all-island economy. You know, when it, when the Good Friday Agreement was signed in 1998, uh, Ireland's trade, its good trading goods, imports and exports, Northern Ireland accounted for 2.7% of the total by last year, 2019, Northern Ireland's share of Ireland's goods trade, the Republic's goods trade, had fallen to 1.6. So, you know, 1.6 of everything Ireland buys and sells goes to or comes from Northern Ireland, which is pretty small. Um, and I think that that is, uh, could, could well change with, uh, from, from next year with Brexit and a reorientation of the Northern Irish economy towards the Republic. I mean, that's, that, that, that's a really good example, I think, of potential. I mean, again... Brexit is one of these great kind of conceptual barriers. It's covered in shadow and until we actually see it on the 31st of December, the 1st of January, it's going to be hard to quantify what that opportunity is or indeed the nature of the blocks in the Irish Sea. I think they're still they're still slightly slightly dark. Um, but rather than getting caught, I mean, I want to get I want to kind of explore this idea of of innovation which you talked about in terms of just the proliferation of Zoom calls, the ease with which you can actually collaborate. And we've seen that around the, you know, the, the efforts to try and develop a vaccine. There are now a, new, a, num, a number of candidates for uh, uh, vaccines, but we've seen the development cycle for that absolutely collapse as um, people involved in the exploration, the, the various levels you know, of clinical trials, uh, the de- development, absolutely telescoped down from you know, anything as long as 10, 12, 15 years down to uh, a matter of months. And it does seem to me that perhaps we're beginning to wake up to um, a capacity to collaborate that we simply haven't really had to do before and then haven't done it. Yeah, well, like, you know, many, my own organization, uh, I'm a contributor to independent newspapers as a columnist, um, you know, both of those organizations have, you know, surprised themselves ourselves in terms of how quickly everyone was able to move to, or almost everyone to, to a remote working. And that is, you know, everyone I speak to from different, you know, types of organizations, uh, overwhelmingly, they've surprised themselves with how well they did in terms of being able to do what they do. Um, in the COVID environment with people working from home. Now, you know, that, 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 that's another, uh, you know, positive out of it, just how adaptable and innovative organizations and people have been uh, in terms of this. And, that, you know, I often think if this had happened in the 1980s before mobile phones, before the internet in particular, you know, what, how would things have been? Um, you know, I, I, really things would have been very, very, things this, all this would have played out very differently, I think. And there, there would have been no backup uh, per se. There seems to have been this backup system that was kind of sitting there latently, but not. I mean, a previous guest on uh, Cargo Bricks, Tina McKenzie, who's a businesswoman in, in in Belfast, she pointed out that they had all these tools, and not just 
um, video conferencing, that, that was a relatively easy buy-in on the fly. But they had these productivity tools that were uh, sitting in the background that they had purchased and probably spent a lot of money on uh, 10 years previously that they never really used because the idea of being in an office meant you could sort of felt like as a manager, you could keep an eye on how things were going. But suddenly when you had to take the near terrifying idea of sending people home uh, and, and wondering whether you still had a business after you, you know, let, let people off the leash, so to speak, those productivity tools began to come in and say, well, look, this is how we're doing here. We're doing okay on that. We're doing okay on this. Uh, and I, I, it just seems to me there's a, there is a, 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 taking your caveat to say, look, there aren't great opportunities here in terms of the fiscal front. It does seem to me that there are creative opportunities to begin using materials and tools that we already have to do things in a very different way. Yeah, well, look, one of the most famous phrases in, in the economics profession is creative destruction. That uh, you know, capitalism is it constantly sees businesses failing, the less efficient one going out of business, and that uh, and that destruction frees up resources to go to better places. Um, so, you know, it could be that there, there is a productivity boom out of this, but you know, yet this is really too early to say on that. Yeah. And, and just background context there's a big debate in the economics profession about low productivity growth across the western across the most developed economies that you know somebody said quite a while ago you know you can see computers everywhere except in the productivity (laughs) statistics so you know despite this transformation of the way we work one would have thought that that would boost productivity i certainly couldn't do most of the things i do without without the internet Um, but that is not showing up really in in stronger productivity growth maybe this is the thing that'll change it maybe this will unleash it but we're we're a long way from from knowing knowing that yeah it's a great term i love the first part creative i'm not so keen on the second but you know because often destruction means destructions of livelihood and actually we've seen a structured dropping of uh wages particularly low end um you know, uh, the gig economy, uh, people really just going. We've seen that in the creative, um, the, the creative industries particularly where just work is just overnight dried up. Um, so, I, you know, I wonder if that is something that people really need to start exploring from a policy point of view about how you tackle that, uh, that productivity you know, it's this this recession. Recessions always hit the young most. So youth unemployment is always higher than than uh, older the unemployment amongst higher people, and it rises much more rapidly during recessions. Now we have seen that in this recession, on you know, in a way that is absolutely really striking, and it's also been affected the lowest paid. So people, ten, you know. People on minimum wage, low pay, tend to be concentrated in areas like the hospitality sector, and they're the ones that have really been clobbered. So, you know, one of the things that I fear will come out of this is a really significant jump in in income inequality, uh, which, you know, again, is another is, 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 you know, if, if, if a recession hits different groups in different ways, you know, in, in, a, in a society that's becoming angrier and more polarized as many societies in the Western world have become recently, uh, this a big increase in income inequality would not be, uh, would not be something I think that would calm anger and, and bring us together um, more as societies. Just give us a, a, a couple of final thoughts, Don, before we finish. 
Well, look, you know, we, we live in a much more uncertain world because of this pandemic. You know, so many things are now uncertain. We don't, you know, even as I said earlier, even evaluating what's happened over the past six months is still is still difficult in terms of who got it right and, you know, what, what were the best ways to deal with this. And we're, we'll be living with that uncertainty and we're, we're living with, you know, an increased risk of ill health and, and for, for those who are vulnerable to COVID in particular, an increased risk, risk of death, which is, you know, a terrible thing. It's like we've gone back to to the days of TB, for example, where you know death was much more prevalent, and you could pick up the pick that up, and you know lives could end. So it's 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 really uncertain, you know, in terms of health, in terms of economy, how that's going to feed into politics and society. Um, so a very changed world from from the beginning of the year. Indeed, and probably from any time that we've known since perhaps the end of the Cold War. And maybe even the Second World War for in, in our part of the world. Cargo of Bricks is brought to you by the Reset Project in partnership with Ulster Bank, bringing you innovative ideas to help aid Northern Ireland's economic recovery. Make sure you catch every edition by hitting the subscribe button wherever you get your quality podcasts. <laughs>